Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more. Right now, we're recording on December 9th of 2021, and Rich is opening a show called Company, and this is his 11th show, you said? Yeah, and uh, obviously, like, I suppose the majority of people who have opened or are about to open a show this season, it's got all that extra uh, meaning because we had done nine previews and were scheduled to open on Stephen Sondheim's 90th birthday. So that would have been a huge event. And instead, it's a very, very bittersweet uh, difference. And I would only say sweet because, of course, this tragedy of losing Sondheim is huge, but what an amazing life. And if you have to, you know, have a, a long, incredible, fruitful life, He's a symbol of that. So it's a huge deal. And I've done a lot of Sondheim and I might've mentioned it before um, that I was lucky to do a bunch of his shows where he was uh, very involved. Um, Yeah, this has a lot of meaning and I'm excited. And as you and I just said, the pressure's off a little bit because all the critics have come, but tonight is just going to be fun. And, uh, and uh and then the reality of how much reviews matter is hovering in the air, but we'll see. We'll see. It's, it's been, it's gotten an incredible response so far. So there's that. So now that your show is open, what do you look for when hiring subs for your show? The first thing and, and beyond the, the obvious basics of just someone who, who has shown in some way or another that they're comfortable playing shows. Ideally, that they've played something more or less at the level of Broadway. If they haven't actually done Broadway and subbed on other shows, they've done some tours, they know what it's like because just being a great drummer is not going to put somebody on the top of, of the list. Uh, you all the elements that you and I have talked about and you've spoken about at length with your other guests that are beyond just being a good drummer or even being a good versatile drummer are key. Uh, you really have to be comfortable with the, the regimen and, and the way shows um, work, even if you're not doing it night after night you're looking for a sub who's comfortable in that situation, who's comfortable adjusting to different conductors, who knows the, um, the best processes for them to practice the show at home so that when they come in, 
I can't say that I've ever memorized a show before I came in. I might, might have had to if I did a show where you're on stage. I think uh, Paul Pizzuti talked about coming in for Larry Lelly on uh, um, Million Dollar Quartet. Is that the name of it? Where you're on stage, there's no music, you got to play those tunes. Um, but if you're not memorizing the show, you got to be really comfortable with those tunes, have them in your head. You've practiced it over and over again. I can say without a doubt, and I'm sure you would word it pretty much the same way when you're practicing it at home and you've got the setup just like the setup in the pit or wherever the drummer is playing, you practice it way beyond the point of you being sick of hearing those tunes. Because when you come in, A, for you, you want to be able to um, give the conductor, you want to watch the conductor so much for the times you need to adjust. And you will have to adjust. It is not something you can do with your eyes closed, even if you have the show memorized. There are all those elements of live playing. Things can change. Certainly in my show, there are subtle musical things that happen that, you know, there's a reason why our show wouldn't be on click. The other side of that coin is you want to make sure your subs are comfortable enough with the show so that they're watching the conductor so that the conductor knows musically and also psychologically that they have the drummer's attention because one of the reasons why subbing on Broadway as a drummer is arguably the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, is that the conductor wants the show to happen. Nothing against your own personality, your own reputation, wants to do the show as if they were closing their eyes and it was like the regular drummer was there. They want to hear everything so close to the way it normally is so that the conductor does not have to work any harder that night with you, with you playing the drums than when the regular drummer is there. So it's, again, it's, it's musical because they want to hear it, but they also want to, when they're looking now in my case, and in many cases, the conductors to see the drummer looks into a video monitor because you're separated. Uh, but if they look into that monitor every time, even if they're not adjusting and the drummer's uh, face is locked in the music, you might luck out because you play the show great and exactly like the regular person. But I think conductors, and, and actually tell me what your experience has been because conductors often will decide whether they, um, what is it, approve and then designate, which is designate as you're locked in and they consider you as good as the regular. Um, when they know they have some sort of, you know, uh, connection with that drummer and the drummer is paying attention. Uh, there are great drummers who have had their own shows built up the best of reputations and not done so well with subbing because a, they didn't even, they didn't necessarily prepare the show to sound like the regular drummer or they were not giving the conductor a certain level of attention that made the conductor comfortable that they had that line of communication. Like you said earlier, 
subbing for a Broadway show for yourself and for myself is the most stressful thing I've ever. Oh, I take that back. Going into family court was stressful. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that that makes even a better point about how stressful Broadway is. Yeah, probably the second most stressful thing I've done. And I remember. Subbing, yeah. No, I was going to say that uh, the show that I subbed on the longest because it was there so long was Beauty on the Beast. I subbed for John Redsecker. And the elements were John was a great guy, easy to sub for in terms of um, uh, being super fair about it. And the show was technically not difficult. However, uh, I, the show was um, phrased in a very old school classical way. The, the different conductors on that show conducted differently. Um, where uh, the bass placed the beat in relation to the conductors, all these elements and the fact that the bass was on the other side of the pit, you were on opposite ends. So there were a lot of challenges. And what would happen is I went in and subbed for him occasionally for a few months. And by the way, I remember when I was learning the show, uh, John wanted to get me in a little earlier, maybe than originally planned. So he said, can I come in and maybe uh, between shows on a break, you play a little drums for me and I'm going to stand on the podium and conduct a few songs as if I was the conductor. And I said, sure. I thought I was ready. I was at that point where I felt like I was tired of practicing those tunes and I did it. And John said, yeah, there are a couple of these tunes. You're not quite ready and put a little bit of the fear in, of God in me. And, and then I think like a week or two later, I came in and subbed the first time. Um, Michael Kosserin, the conductor, is not a very expressive guy. I hope I'm not, uh, um, I don't think I'm saying anything bad in, in terms of his face, what he would show. And uh, I did well, but it was because the fear of God was put in, in me. And at that time, I think it was Beauty and the Beast famously, in the first of the two theaters they were in, had a little pulley system where you could send notes to people at different ends of the pits by putting a little note in a cup and pulling a string. And I might've been for my first time subbing, but somehow the conductor cause Michael Costrum got a note to me and said something nice. But having said that I sub on and off, depending on how busy I was for 13 years. And it would kill me that I would come in. I might not have been on the show for a while and I would, I would go over the show, but I would always be nervous. I would be standing on the subway platform and uh, I would let it eat me up inside, be, partly because it was just sometimes hard to, to lock into the band on something as simple as like a waltz because of different elements. So it's a challenge. And, and it's frustrating to be so stressed out over something that you know technically is not that difficult. What do you do as a chairholder to prepare your subs to sub for you? Good question. Certainly, if you've got a, a um, prospective sub coming in 
who hasn't done a lot of Broadway. You need to uh, advise them and coach them on the things to look for. But even a seasoned player, you want to say, you know, the pitfalls after you've had a chance to play it for however long, uh, weeks, months, years, you know what the things, what the pitfalls might be in general with your show. And you also will be armed with some information if other subs have come in and have struggled with some things and you go, oh, I never realized that that would be the thing they'd have to worry about. But in general, if it's your chair, a couple of important things. One is uh, mark your music appropriately. Uh, now that isn't to necessarily say over market. Um, you don't want a lot of scribblings in and things that might only mean something to you. Uh, the great thing now, really great thing now, and as a matter of fact, tonight we expect to hopefully get a conductor cam, a recording of the conductor, um, which is a great device for subs. Uh, I think the best thing now, A, is you, the subs get a relatively virgin copy of the music. Let the subs watch the show. And as we all know, drum subs are going to watch the show more times than usually other instruments because of all the nuances you have to get. Uh, they're going to have their music and they're hopefully going to have a recording of the show, maybe just the sound, but also a video recording of the conductor. And I found that I could be really, um, I could decide to be really good with marking my book super specifically. But what I've tended to do is uh, rely on my subs to mark their books, to give them some room to mark their books the way they would give themselves notes based on what they hear when they, when they listen to you play the show. So, of course, mark the music so that they have the right measures and they know because our show, like any show, has evolved during the preview period where changes were made up until a few days ago. And you just don't want to forget those couple of things that have changed since the sub might have heard the show and then they come in and, you know, missing a couple of measures or miss missing how a vamp plays out could be minor or it could be kind of disastrous, as you know. So you want your book marked up appropriately. But what's going to happen is if you get your subs a fresh copy of the music with little to no markings, mm, let them ask the questions. It is their homework to listen to something and go, you know, I listen to this and it doesn't really go with what is on the page. Uh, they'll either ask you what you, you're doing or they'll hear you play the show more than once because you might have changed it and figure out, oh, yeah, there's a little play here. Rich does it differently, this subtly differently each show. Uh, I'm going to ask him, but maybe that's OK. Or this doesn't go with what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. Uh, let them ask the questions. Keep a really good line of communication open with your subs. And back to your original question, uh, 
I think subbing on Broadway is that step even further than hiring on Broadway. And we're at a point now where we want to get as much diversity in the pits as we do everywhere. However, the other element of making sure that the people who get those gigs have some sort of experience, that the experience counts, let me put it that way. Um, it's important because of how specific this type of gig is. Have you ever hired someone that hasn't done Broadway musicals before as a sub? No. I, you know, I, that could happen, I guess. But I think that would be a, a rarity and for good reason. And now this is not to say that there isn't a way to work your way up the ladder. And I would be the last person to say that just because I had a real slow climb from, you know, community theater and all that stuff to dinner theater to, to bus and truck tours to bigger tours, all of that, you could make the leap much more quickly because of your ability and because of circumstance. That's fine. Uh, but when you're, it's your responsibility as the chairholder to find subs. And if you're lucky in doing a show for 20 years and your pool of subs gets to be really deep and you're starting to give chances to people who uh, might not be that season because you figured out the way to make it fair for the conductor and for people to hear somebody that's going to do a good job. But you're picking your first few subs. Eh, first and foremost is you want somebody who's going to do the best job. And the easiest way to make that happen is to make sure that the person you have subbing has that experience. And if it's a catch-22 where they say, well, how do I get that experience? Well, you get that experience by subbing for somebody uh, in community theater, in local theater, and you do a great job and the conductor says, hey, did a great job. Then you, you it, we know this is it. I mean, there are some more, some auditions now, but nobody's got an agent. This is all built on reputation. So to make a leap from not having done shows. Now this, uh, you asked, have I ever gotten anybody who never played Broadway before? Um, I don't think so, but I wouldn't discount it, but I would, I would not get anybody who hadn't done some sort of uh, run of a show, a tour or subbed a lot on something because you need that um, some level of that experience. Somebody comes to New York city. I want to play Broadway shows. I just graduated from Berkeley, from a conservatory in Iowa, wherever. <laughs> That's all I want to do. I want to do what you guys are doing for a living. I have done stuff at my college, but I've never done anything outside of that. I'm here now. Uh, Rich, can I come watch you play? You're like, great. Uh, can I sub for you now? What would you say? I would say if I had the time to put in to work with this person so that I would have a sense that they might do a great job. Now, let's put aside the fact, uh, an element that we haven't mentioned, which is 
uh, you're not really the only person deciding who your subs are technically. Uh, different contractors get involved at different levels. And I've thrown names out with contractors and they've strongly suggested that I don't put them at the top of the list for whatever reason, or they've strongly recommended people that I don't even know. You have to factor that in. But um, you're making me think of something interesting, and that is I currently have a student who lives in Ottawa. I've never met him in person. He's actually coming to see the show company with his wife. He's in his early 30s. He's a member of the Canadian military band. He, he called me up to uh, see if he could study. I said, sure, I like adult students. Turns out he's a badass drummer. He can play. He can swing. And I've heard him. I've seen videos. But he loves musical theater. And we've had the best time where I send him charts of shows that I've done or whatever, and he works on them and he records himself playing them. And clearly this guy has a grasp of what it takes to play shows. And he would be, if he came to New York, eh, this is kind of an interesting thing because it's answering your question in a way that I guess is an exception to where my head would be at in terms of hiring a sub. And that is if he told me now, that um, he wanted to sub on company and he was moving to New York, the only reason why I wouldn't is because I have a few other people in line who, who are obvious candidates. But as far as somebody who I think could handle it, I would put him on my list and how high up he would get on that list in terms of his ability could be pretty high. The only reason why he wouldn't might just be different circumstances uh, that have nothing to do with the fact that I think he could handle it. So, yes, and this also goes back to the discussions we have about there being a whole generation of people who are dying to play on Broadway and make a career out of it. So it's competitive. I hope we're at a point or we're getting to a point where any little kid, no matter their uh background race sexuality all of that stuff should be like you want to play on broadway go for it it if you're lucky it can be fun and I, you know what i shouldn't say broadway because specifically that means you got to move to new york and then you got to be one of the lucky 15 or 20 drummers who has a show but touring and i was just uh listening to some jazz legend talking about how tough touring is because if you're doing one-nighters it's a tough life and you're not really seeing the country or the world but touring on broadway you and i talked about it that's a a once in a lifetime great experience you can have unless you hate travel because you're in each city for an extended period of time you can explore a city you you also pay great dues in terms of learning uh, how to play a show regularly. You can't sub out. Uh, so it's a, so, uh, if you love playing Broadway shows, you should be without a doubt open to the world of musical theater, which is Broadway tours, regional theater, 
All the big cities have some great regional theaters, great and great local musicians. So there's a world out there and uh, go for it, whether you wind up in New York or not. When you have subs that come in, do you do the John Redsecker, Tommy Igo thing and not necessarily conduct, but are there in the pit with them and have them play your show or do you, are you not that hands-on? I haven't been that hands-on, but that's been because I I don't know if John and or Tommy were either instructed or uh, it was suggested to them that they do that. Excuse me. That maybe their conductors recommended that because that was their MO or because in their experience, they realized that it would be better that drummers got a little prep that way. Um, But also I was an unknown quantity to John Redsecker. I don't know how many other subs he had gone through if he did it with the other ones, but I had subbed on Broadway before that. Um, But I was still relatively new to the Broadway scene. The subs that I've hired, partly because they were shorter runs where I hadn't had a chance to go beyond two or three people. Almost, I've never done a show where I had more than three people who got a chance to play it. I'd rather give more work to a few people. It's kind of unfair to ask someone to go through the process of learning a show and and then have them play it once unless it just happens the show closes so the people i've hired uh were all seasoned enough broadway people so that they knew and you can also tell by the questions they ask that they're preparing themselves properly so I could see a scenario where if I'm lucky, I'm in a long running show and I've, I've worked through five plus people and there's somebody who's shown that they could be a great sub, but are a little greener. Um, and I know it's, I still don't know if I would get up on, well, I can't get up on the podium in my case, that would be tricky because it's, we're remoted, but it's, I don't know. Well, let me put it this way. Here's actually an easy bottom line. If you're doing that because you want to see for yourself uh, how they play, okay, but with the conductor videos now, that didn't apply necessarily to, I don't think, do you remember it to The Lion King? And it certainly didn't apply to Beauty and the Beast where somebody goes home and for weeks they're they're practicing to a video of the conductor that's such a great tool we're um that has alleviated a lot of the tricky parts of breaking subs in how often do you take off of your show in order to get your subs in that's a pretty cut and dry situation for me because i think the best rule for me and it and and how it um it's also obvious that it, it it's best for everyone is that break a couple of people in 
fairly soon so that you're covered. And in COVID times, even more importantly, break, break a couple of people in because, you know, things happen. Beyond that, I think a good barometer for the, the, the longevity of a show uh, varies, but in our case, let's say that uh, we'll get past <laughs> reviews and the holiday season, and you have January and February, and then the next barometer would be making it to the Tony Awards. So let's say my mindset is until the Tony Awards, um, I, first of all, can't afford to take off much right now. And I think that applies to a lot of people. Uh, if I'm getting other great gigs, fine. If I really need to take an extra day off, okay. But mostly I'm going to try to be there because I need to be. And therefore, uh, I, I've talked to several people that I would like to have sub, but I've made it clear to them that um, I might be happy to get them the book, but to ask them to come in and watch certainly more than once is something that's going to be down the line well into the spring. If I have two people that are available, that have gotten approved and or designated and are eager, that's the other quality that I don't know if, if, if other people have mentioned this to you, Clayton, but I something about when you talk to someone who's really confident and says, I'm there for you, I can, I, I can get to the show within 30 minutes. That's another little element that's important. Um, and I'm working my, I work my butt off to learn it and they show enthusiasm. You know, all that gives you peace of mind. It's still the proofs in the pudding once they play the show. But you know, if you're talking to someone and it takes some arm twisting to get them to sub, even if you want them to sub because they're so great, yeah, I'm very hesitant to have a deep pool of, of subs who only get to play the show once. When I did Beauty and the Beast, um, John was really nice enough to, when I didn't have my own show and he knew that I was available, he would give me a bunch of dates, try to give me a chunk of time when he could. And I think his pool of subs uh, was deep. Um, but I would practice the show uh, if I hadn't done it for a while. And if I hadn't done it for a couple of years, which was the case a few times, I'd say, can I come in and watch you do it? Because things change. Um, and then I subbed for Larry Lelly on the producers. I, I might have mentioned this, um, or maybe not, but I subbed for him after I'd done the tour for two years. Two years, I did the producers. I, of course, knew it in my sleep, but I watched him play it a couple of times after I'd come back from the tour, certainly because any drummer would know that just because you know the show and you learn it in the same, a similar process to the way the Broadway drummer learned it. Uh, same directors, same music, pretty much. But you got to come in, and I had to learn it the way Larry played it. And Larry's playing even evolved in a way that I had to adjust 
And then there was the added element that the conductor uh, was maybe, let's just say, a little mercurial. And what he thought was fine the first time I played it, then I came in after subbing for eight or nine times with other conductors uh, that were subbing for him on Broadway. And then he came back and I played the show pretty much the way I had before. And uh, it wasn't a disaster. There were no train wrecks, but I, I was not doing exactly what the conductor wanted to hear. That's a, that's a singular different story, but it's, it's complicated, man. And there are a lot of elements and on your show, you're getting all this great advice. Um, but one of the pieces of, of all that advice are you do the best you can. You use your experience and nothing is a given. It's a, it's a big machine. It all comes back to that being a big machine. And the show is your primary responsibility to make it so that you're doing your best to give your conductor more than anybody else the chance to relax and feel okay that who you're bringing in is someone they're comfortable with. You're not there to make your friends happy. Lord knows we've all like wanted to give it to good friends who we like and or we think are great drummers, twice the drummer that you are yourself. Um, I remember Buddy Williams calling me when he started doing Hello, Dolly, because I was on the short list of the conductor. And <laughs> Buddy's great. He called me up, he said, and, and I had really not met him. He said, man, I don't really know you. Uh, and I got to find some subs. And I got five guys that I would love to give this to, but the conductor said I should call you. It was almost like, man, I don't really want you. I don't really know you, but could you come in and sub the show? And I was like, oh, thank you, man. That's really nice of you. <laughs> I mean, of course, it made me feel good to know the conductor had recommended me. But, hey, it was fair enough for Buddy. See, that's the politics of what we do. Uh, sometimes the conductor or the contractor say, get so-and-so. Meanwhile, Buddy doesn't know me at all. And it's not even like my reputation is anything so great so that he go, oh, well, I, I can understand why they asked me to ask Rich. Plus, there's even the added element in his show that the star of the show uh, was particularly happy to know that Buddy was playing the drums. And when he wasn't down there, if Bette Midler heard something slightly different, uh, I think it was not... Uh, uncommon for her to say was buddy out tonight and why it's it's tricky man it's yeah, tricky i don't i don't know all the politics of what happened at that show but i know it was very wasn't a good scene for the, the drummer who had to be let go and buddy had to come in oh um well i think we can say that things happen but here's an interesting thing that i think we can talk about because Eric Poland has such a good reputation and is an excellent drummer percussionist. 
Uh, he's now going to be the drummer on the Music Man. So things happen, and it puts the fear of God in all of us when a drummer with such a great reputation, for whatever reason, doesn't work out for a show. And many times, it's for reasons beyond their abilities and the kind of person they are. Things just happen. But I think we can talk about it because, you know, it was awful for Eric or anybody to go through that. But when you're as great as he is, you're most likely going to land on your feet because everybody knows that he's um, a huge asset. Have you ever been fired from a show? It's important to talk about that. We, failure is the best way we learn, and it's not even necessarily failure. As long as you have good self-reflection and self-awareness so that if you're not asked back to a gig um, and you have enough self-awareness to know it's because you didn't take care of business, you could have been much better at what you did and you don't dwell on bitterness because you know hey you know fuck those people who fired me they're jerks anyway that's a bad attitude that's obviously going to serve you badly however things happen and it's not always easy because you're let go let's say and we're all we all have some level of a super fragile ego just by nature of what we do for a living. It's so, and it's very hard to explain to people who aren't in the arts and you don't want to sound um, too self-important or whatever to say, you know, in the arts, our egos are perhaps a little more fragile because what we're offering is something that's a deeply personal reflection of who we are. You could be really skilled at what you do, but when it's, artistic oh forgive me for sounding pretentious but it's like the ultimate example are comedians the joke is it's uh there was a play three guys um what is it three guys standing with their pants down you're just exposing yourself and and you're making yourself vulnerable so my point is is that you have to deal with a fragile ego but if you're let go and you know that there are so many other things in play, you, yes, you're right. You have to be confident that something else will come up, that people will recognize that you, you built a reputation. And uh, yeah, don't let those experiences ruin it for you. Because if you take a step back and you look at it in general and you go, yeah, I'm fired a lot and people seem to be turned off by me. That's one thing, but it's like, oh, you know, I've, I've done pretty well. This didn't work out. I don't want to just point the finger and blame other people because that's poisonous to anybody. And we've seen that a lot in our business, people who just are very quick to say, to blame other people for their own career failures, but easier said than done, have enough of a, mm, enough of an ego to not let those things stand in the way. If it's something you have to take stock of and get better at fine, but also know that there are things that are political or that have nothing to do with you as a player 
and move on. When you talk about what you do for a living, how do people see what you do for a living? Do they pity you? They're like, oh, you know, that's cool. But, you know, when you get a real job, give me a call. (laughs) Yeah, it it is a weird dichotomy, if I can use that college term, but I, and I think it's the right word. We were saying how in one sense, they, unless somebody really has no clue about the arts in general, then at some level they'll be impressed because it's, it's showbiz and you're playing drums. And it's funny, even as a drummer, people might have this thing about, Oh, you bang on something and you're getting paid for it. Isn't that cute? But I, you know, there are lots of levels with all of this, with being in the arts, but I think as far as perception to the public and even to our friends, I think a big determining factor is based on uh, a sense of pop culture and that just as actors have to deal with this all the time, it's the barometer is how big of a star are you? And unless you're in a high profile situation, well, that is how success is measured. As we all know, in a superficial way, if you're the drummer for um, Taylor Swift, you're a huge success and you are, but that could be your only gig. And for whatever reason, before and after you are anonymous in terms of the public. Um, If you're a movie star and then suddenly you're not doing a lot of movies, they go, what happened to so-and-so? Boy, their career really tanked. And you have no idea. I don't know. I'm using actors because it's an easier way to to illustrate this. But in a way, it's what we deal with. the actor might have done, as far as they're concerned, their most rewarding, their best work when they did a regional production of Death of a Salesman, but they were also in uh, a minor Avengers character in an in in Avengers movie. And to most people, that's their barometer for success. Um, for drummers or the musicians, if you're playing on Broadway, of course, they know... People know what Broadway is. That's cool. <clears throat> um, but we're freelancers. And, and back to your specifically your question, there's a combination of maybe admiration that you've made your life doing what you really love and not what you feel like you have to do. Uh, and you might be respected. I've had so many college friends say, you know, you pursued your dreams and I really didn't and I'm jealous. But there's also either a subtle or overt sense of, but I feel kind of sorry for you because it's a struggle. They know that even when I'm making a good living and you said, you know, we make a good living and we're only working 24 hours a week, but you and I also both know that you can't judge what we do the same way, a nine to five job, right? All the, right. All the preparation we have to do, all the, we have to be there. Uh, and what it took to get where we're at. And also, yeah, you tell someone what our yearly salary is, our yearly gross, uh, then you say, yeah, but if, if I were making that and living in Peoria, 
I'd be doing really well, but I live in New York and then I don't work much for three or four months. And it's hard to have a huge nest egg and save so that you don't worry about those times. So it's, it's a real insecure life. So having said that, if you get to do what you and I do and often enough, we have a level of satisfaction, I think, that we can be proud of, but other people perceive it still as like, uh, I feel kind of sorry for you. Well, (laughs) at this point, yeah, I mean, that's a cliche, but at this point in our lives, they know that's what we opted for. And uh, yeah, I, I hate to say it, but there might be an element of pity from people that uh, you kind of go, well, I don't have the time to explain everything that's involved so that pity shouldn't, I don't, I haven't really thought this through to <laughs> articulate it, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like some people, it's, it's hard to make people understand what it is you do in the arts. Here's the bottom line. It's difficult to make people understand what you do in the arts, whether it's music, acting, uh, and even behind the scenes, creative work, or uh, even working on even working on crews. Of course, that's super important. But they everything is measured by success is measured by fame and visibility, and that's tricky in terms of how we how we navigate the way people think about us, if that's important to you. Yeah. And all we can do is like you might've had when you were a kid offer ways to educate the public, whether it's, it's talking to kids in schools or adults who don't know some way, some reminder, it's not a given for them to understand what it is they're getting, let's be specific with Broadway, a live show from beginning to end and what's involved. And if people stop to think about it on their own, they might get it, but still, uh, all we can do to make people understand a little bit what it is that you and I do and props people do is somehow educate them and remind them because always in, in the arts, in anything, the deeper someone has an understanding of what's involved, the um, the better the chance there's going to be a broader way of enjoying and appreciating their experience. Let's use jazz as an example. You don't. There are elements of jazz that I personally think are very primal, and people can enjoy. They don't have to be scared by like, oh, I don't understand it. I think there are things about it, just the sound of a walking bass could just strike somebody as being cool. But the more you understand it, uh, the more you'll be able to enjoy it at different levels. So if we talk about Broadway, part of that thrill is when you know and you're sitting there in the audience, and God, I hope there was a little extra level of um, appreciation after not having been able to go to a show for 20 months, that when you know and you're sitting there in the audience that 
from every moment, forget about all the prep before and after, you sit down, that overture starts that there are 60 plus people making this shit happen all at once. And yes, we're a, vis we're a visual uh, species. So the first thing we notice is what we see and, and we're guided by stardom and, and who we're watching singing. But that experience and what's going to make it a whole lot different than TV and movies or whatever is when you know that those people are up there singing and acting, but in the pit or in a room somewhere, not because someone's pressing a button and playing a recording of a band, but it's live, it's live, it's live. And those prop props guys are doing that and, and doing their job. And the spotlight person, if they screw up, it's amazing. And, and all we can do is not take for granted that the audience knows all this, because if we do, then we're always fighting all of us with keeping the minimums in a band, giving the band, well, I'll be real selfish now. I still have a hard time when the band is, oh God, now I'm gonna sound like a little bitter, but I think I speak for most musicians uh, because we're usually not seen. And I've been lucky to do the encores where I see what the difference is. We rarely get reviewed. Poor Mrs. Doubtfire with, yeah, I'll mention the reviews weren't great, but they didn't mention the music at all in the, in the review that I read in the Times. We constantly, the, the band is a, is a taken for granted that they're going to do a good job and, and, and they're almost never mentioned in a review. Uh, how long did we wait before our names were put in programs? Um, and, and, little things like uh when i'm on tour or when you hear announcements and they and they say cast and crew and they think they're covering everybody so it's little things like that and this does sound like i'm a little bitter because i'm singling out the band but there are a lot of things taken for granted when you're in the arts i think because it's still measured by success and visibility when we're all important and I don't know. I think I'm guessing you and I and everybody else, in spite of what the overall public thinks, I'm partly doing this because I think it's a really cool thing that I admired from when I was a little kid, when I saw, oh God, I'm going to remember this name. And I thought of it because of the questions you posed. Joe Abeg was a kid in high school who was a really good drummer when I was in junior high. And I saw a production of West Side Story and I couldn't believe, I knew the music by then, I couldn't believe that this was possible for kids a little older than me to play West Side Story. And okay, they're not on stage, they're not the stars, but man, what a cool thing. So yeah, we keep educating the public a little bit in overt ways and subtle ways so they know what's going on. I don't know if I asked you this before, but what advice would you give to anyone that's interested in playing drums for Broadway musicals? Um, well, I actually, I think you asked a version of that, but um, 
assuming the person's getting into it because they're enthusiastic about it, uh, based on them having seen a lot of shows or just they're curious about it. Uh, okay, if it's just because you see it's a way to make a living playing your instrument. But uh, I think it would just go back to what we always hear, which is take take all those gigs, especially in the beginning of your career, take them all because you're always going to learn something new, even in the shitty experiences. No, especially in the shitty situations. Uh, you're going to learn something valuable. And if you've got a good attitude, even when you do have a bad experience, you might take something back with you where if you don't think of it right away and you're getting over what might have been bad about it later on, you go, yeah, but you know, I learned A, B, or C. And knowing that is going to serve me well in the future. So you got to be all that dues paying. Uh, I can't think of anything that discounts the value of paying some dues whether it's a traumatic experience on a gig that we all want to forget or just minor things, uh, little technical musical things or social things about how to get along with other musicians. It's all going to serve you well. And that's what you should be thinking about when you're going into it. What kind of gear do, do you use? What kind of instruments do you use? Uh, certain kind of drums, certain uh, kind of heads, certain kind of sticks, cymbals. There we go. A big, a big left turn to get technical here. Uh, but a good question. Um, you know, uh, my general philosophy, uh, I'm, I've never been a super gearhead uh, beyond the fact that when I was a kid, getting the uh, drum catalogs was was pretty exciting and fantasizing about all the great pictures of drum sets and all the drum sets that I wanted to have that were out of my reach at a certain age. Beyond that, it's my philosophy has been drums are drums as long as they're well-made. So I haven't been super picky about that. Um, hardware, I tend to go with simple is usually better and I found more convenient and trying to reinvent the wheel with, with gear that might be good for someone's particular situation. But I get frustrated with when I'm on a gig and there's a rented kit and I get some sort of fancy ass drum stand that doesn't, you want to say something about that? You, Go mean, ahead. The, you mean the drum workshop hardware? Have you seen the DW uh, hardware? Uh, I have, but I, I, you know, I think you were discussing that with uh, someone else, maybe Paul again. I don't know that I can yeah. speak specifically to that, but I bet you if I gave some examples, you go, oh yeah, well that's DW or some other company. Uh, here's an example. Um, and this is also personal, but the concept of having a hi-hat stand where the pedal serves as the third leg, uh, I, it's like, I, I guess for, for certain reasons that might've worked, but I'm not a, a really heavy hitting player feet either. And, and every time I've used one of those, the hi-hat starts shaking and I'm going, what good does this do me? I the three legs on a hi-hat stand is usually pretty good. And if, and if the pedal can move a little bit within the, 
you know, between the two, because you need to angle something like I have a little trio gig I do in a tiny uh, bar where there's barely enough room. All right, that's cool. But heavy, heavy stands, I'm thinking, all right, if I'm playing with Metallica, this is great, but I don't want to schlep this around. So it's all about in the end for drums, if they're well-made, great. I've been using Pearl mostly, but uh, if someone's renting me uh, a DW or a, I have some Gretsch drums, I have a, I have a mixed breed uh, setup. Um, all of that's great, but, but hardware that's pretty simple, makes sense. And then like every good drummer, it all comes down to the cymbals. And when I was a kid, it's like, Why do I, my drums sound like shit, but it's all because the cymbals are hard to get that you like. And when you find those symbols, you stick with them. I, I think now if I had the money, I'd probably be buying more because uh, I like what I hear. Uh, and certainly it's for a long time, it hasn't been all about Zildjian. Uh, there are other options, but I have my favorite symbols on, if you want to be specific and talk gear, I've had a 20 inch Istanbul with a couple of rivets that I've used on almost every show because it's a great all around symbol. I'll tape up the rivets if, if you don't want that sound, but sometimes there'll be one and you'll hear it just enough so that it doesn't get in the way. And I just like it. Um, fast crashes. If I need that, uh, a couple of good hybrid, Symbols that serve good for a crash ride. Uh, an, a K from, I think, the 80s that I use that's 18 inches. And then I'll just throw in my little thing, my little personal pet peeve. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm contributing more to the discussion on this topic is for splash symbols. And because a lot of shows, I would say, man, almost every show I've done has a splash symbol in it. And I never got into the sound of the little tiny ones that are eight in, eight inches or whatever, because to me, they sound more like a novelty that was cool for say fusion or smooth jazz drummers with all these chops to have that extra sound. But I'm, if I'm obsessed about anything, it's to try to sound authentic to the time. And all those cool choke sounds and splash cymbal sounds from the 20s and 30s, I think there were some tiny cymbals, but a lot of them were 14-inch cymbals, even bigger. Uh, and so I've been using this 14-inch Zilco hi-hat cymbal for a splash on every show I've done. This is all for drummers who like the minutiae of it, but I've used it and it's on a lot of recordings uh, for every show I've had as uh, where I needed a splash. Outside of your show, are you working on any musical projects at the moment or any other non-musical projects? Well, um, yeah, I've been, uh, and you mentioned it, thank you for mentioning it at the very, very top of this. Um, COVID being the mother of invention for many of us, uh, I am doing my podcast, which is um, a little off the beaten path from a regular interview 
show, which I like, and we all like to talk, as you can see. So putting this down for posterity, talking to people about careers and stuff is very cool. But I was inspired as I learned to record myself at the beginning of COVID and trying to figure out how I could combine that with talking to fellow musicians. And then I thought, you know, I have this preponderance of of bass player friends that I've made, not just in New York, but around the country when I toured. How can I combine all these things? Because I want to do something that's distinctive, that's that I'm personally interested in. So the short answer description of what I do, a podcast called Big Noise from Planet Earth, is I took very short on average, two-minute snippets of me improvising on drums. Uh, I sent five of them to my guests who for season one were all bassists. And I asked them to record over those snippets of me improvising, doing whatever the hell they wanted to. They could play as if they were playing a bass solo in a jazz situation, but they could play upright or, or electric. They could manipulate my recording. The sky was the limit. And partly what inspired me was that I could easily say that all my bass player friends and some that I didn't know very well, all had very different personalities. And I was hoping that that would be reflected in what they did. They were not going to be listening to what each other did. It was, it played out over a year, this podcast, this season, and it was a thrill. I interviewed them. It was a, it's a show where it's about an hour plus. We talk about careers. We talk about personal things, but amid that we played back the duets that they created with me and talked about the process. And my goal was to have an interesting uh, experiment with the creative mind and see how they all um, laid down tracks, whether they did it very spontaneously. One great guest of mine, John A. Bear, one of the great improvising jazz bassists in town, opted to not listen to my recordings first, to just turn them on, listen to a second or two, say, all right, he's playing brushes on this, and then just play over it. And then other guests listened to him several times and planned something out. And I got such an amazing variety. It was such a thrill. And I finished season one, and I'm embarking on season two. And I hope people listen. I've gotten a nice response. Uh, I'm asking different musicians, not who play one particular instrument, to lay down a third layer, which is interesting because it wasn't set up to be like a solo over a rhythm section. So it's kind of dense and it's challenging, but I'm about to interview the great guitarist in town named Pete McCann, who I work with in the past in a band I had, and he sent me his newly created trios and uh man clayton it's just a thrill to listen to what these guys come up with based on these little improvs that i did where i played a little bit of a groove and then started to play freely and so anyway that's been my one big musical project 
And the other thing which I haven't worked steadily for a little while is I've written screenplays. So that's a whole other, oh, God help me, a whole other podcast. Um, but that was certainly a creative outlet I've had over the last couple of decades on and off, especially periods where I wasn't gigging that much. And I am still shopping around a couple of those. They're feature films, so it's a huge challenge. One in particular being a big budget historical drama, but I believe in the project. I'm going to keep trying, but you know, I've told people over and over again, I picked the one business that's the only business that's even crazier than the music business, which is movies. And I'll keep trying. I believe in them, um, but it takes a lot of energy. And I will throw this in to your podcast just because it's kind of funny. And I think a lot of drummers will chuckle. The first thing I wrote of the four screenplays that I've written was a story I made up about a New York drummer. You always write what you know, especially that first time around. A New York drummer who's a jazz drummer at heart, but playing Broadway shows. And after Tony Williams dies, he finds out that Tony Williams' famous 22-inch old K ride cymbal accidentally winds up in the hands of a country and Western drummer who doesn't know what he has. And I wrote, I made up the story because I was so frustrated with all the movies made about musicians that just didn't feel honest. And all I could think of was that filmmakers, as always, feel like they have to make stuff up to make it interesting to an audience when I thought if you tell a true story or something that's, that's authentic, there's a way to tell it so that it's interesting. And I didn't want to tell the story about a musician and the jazz world that involved a, 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 a brutal junkie who would beat his girlfriend, but he was a genius or something super cliche. It's like, no, man, I, there are interesting things in my world. And why not tell something that's funny and fun? And then you're thinking, well, who the hell's going to go see a movie about a guy trying to get Tony Williams old ride symbol, but you tell a fun story. I made it a road trip where the, the drummer takes uh, a, a woman who he, who he likes, who's also in the current Broadway show he's playing in, and they go to a past convention in Nashville. And it's a wacky, fun road story. But if you um, are able to convey the passion and the mania that, it, that a drummer might have to get his hands on that ride symbol that Tony played with Miles, you don't have to necessarily have an audience that knows those recordings or knows about drummers or certainly knows about ride symbols. But if, if you get that sense in the story, it could be fun. It should be funny without making fun of the music, not necessarily. And I wrote a script and I did readings and a bunch of drummers in town came to the reading. I got some great actors and I did that. And I thought, well, maybe this isn't a lark. I, I thought I had a pretty good ear for dialogue and I learned a lot. I hand wrote it. And then I had people I knew in Hollywood who were up and coming writers and 
he, uh, a married couple and he's a director and they thought it was a cool story. So I took it to a certain level. It, it kind of ended, but it was encouraging for me and I kept writing, but it was kind of a cool story to, to put out there still would be if you do it right. Where can people find you if they want to find out more about you? Okay. Well, for my screenwriting, uh, endeavors, I do have just a way to, to put out there interest in in my scripts and that's actually i do have a website rich rosenzweig uh, at weebly.com weebly is a i don't know how big they are still but they're a uh a, a website provider so it's w-e-e-b-l-y.com and that has um log lines which are brief uh, one or two sentence descriptions of what the story is. And then it has a synopsis of, of the screenplays I've written and uh, a few other things that would help somebody get in touch with me and give them an idea of what I've written. Um, and then if you're asking me, and I'm, I'm grateful for it, uh, if they want to listen to the podcast, I'm looking forward to putting out episode one of season two, which will be out very early next year, uh, where my first guest will be Pete McCann, the guitarist. But I do have 10 episodes out, all with bassists. And I will say proudly that what was so great about it is that you really can get a huge spectrum just with bassists of what careers have been like and how each bassist, all of them are spectacular, have contributed musically to the same exact short drum pieces by me, which is a great way to illustrate their creative minds. So uh, I think that um, has been probably the most exciting thing I've done during COVID. And that's called Big Noise from Planet Earth and very easy to find. And like all podcasts, you don't necessarily have to uh, download or sign up. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Rosenzweig. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) Drummer for company, podcast host of Big Noise from Planet Earth, screenwriter, all around good person. Uh, He's going to be opening his 11th Broadway show this evening, December 9th. The show is called Company with Patti LuPone and many other amazing musicians, cast and crew. (laughs) Yeah, right. Put it out there in the ether. Good karma. Everybody, everybody works so hard. We all know that. Yeah. Well, enjoy. Hopefully you'll be running for 10 years. Uh, I, I would be all for it. All right. We will talk again. Clayton, it's been a pleasure, man. Uh, thank you for this. I really appreciate the opportunity. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. 
When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton-Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.